Uh, certainly, um, you you might be able to uh, ascertain that uh, we love our our old man. And um, what I, I actually was only hired on for six months, and uh, three years down the road, I'm, I'm still here. Uh, because this one here asked me to do uh, magic in six months. It wasn't possible, uh, but one of the first things that she asked me to do was to redesign uh, the logo, and that's when we uh, came up with this here. And um, the, uh, the logo is divided into three parts. So it's got celestial, terrestrial, and aquatic. Because the watershed is not just the water, it's, it's a holistic thing. And also embedded in the, in the logo are some very important um, animal totems for Blackfoot culture, including the, the eagle, um, the place of eagles where Nappy has his, his gambling uh, adventures, uh, the plains bison, which are recently reintroduced and a very important symbol of the prairies, ecologically, scientifically, culturally, and so on, sage grouse, and also the West Slope cutthroat trout, which are the canaries in the coal mine for our, for our streams. So that's the short version. My name is Gus. Um, it's 2016, and I plan to be around for another 100 years. Can you please tell me what the watershed will look like in 100 years from now? Well, I can, I can tell you what we know uh, from computer modeling that Anna mentioned to do the maps, um, which we have mapped out to 2060 um, with the LC's modeling and Dr. Brad Stelfox. And if we just project out current trends, like Anna mentioned, um, it's not pretty. Um, water quality continues to decline. Um, habitat continues to decline. Fragmentation increases. Um, you know, more species go at, go extinct. Um, basically, you know what we have today just keeps getting a little bit worse, a little bit worse, um, and that's part part of the challenge, right? Is it's you know one to two percent a year. It's almost unnoticeable, and so um, unless you look back over time, you you don't notice. And it's and people tend to want to protect what they have today. And they don't remember what they had, you know, 30, 50 years ago. So it, it's very much our, our mentality is to protect what we have today, right? That's what we want to leave to our kids. Um, but the, the computer models are very clear. Um, and that unless we make some, some major changes, things will continue to slowly decline at 1% to 2% a year. <laughs> Sorry for that, for the bad news clause. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just kind of slow and steady, right? So, um, the videos, what's the long, what's the game plan of these videos? I mean, I've watched them on the web and stuff. Is it just a passive, know they're there, go look at them, or is there an active, Proactive game plan that everybody uses videos. Did someone pay you to ask that question? <laughs> no, I'm curious. <laughs> well, I'm very glad you asked that question because, in fact, there is a game plan, 
Um, when you walked in, you saw on the on the big poster there, um, Water Southern Alberta Water Charter 2017. That's the next piece of the puzzle. It is not enough to make a bunch of videos. They must be watched. So how do you get people to watch them? How do you get people to share them? How do you get people to implement a change of behavior? Actually do something different because as Shannon said, you got scope creep. We know what's going to happen. We must do things differently. This is urgent. So um, based on uh, verbiage from the United Nations, from the federal government of Canada, from the provincial government of Alberta, um, from the city of Lethbridge, and also from the Old Man Watershed Council, you can see I'm going down in orders of magnitude, we have challenged the mayors and reeves of southern Alberta to sign that water charter. And the water charter says, we will do something differently. It's not just talk or another plan or another meeting or another scheme. You're going to do something differently. And they have to tell us what it is. So they have to commit to a water act, whatever that is. They have to decide for themselves. It doesn't have to be in their own municipality. It could be upstream or downstream. We're talking a holistic thing here, right? So it can be anywhere in the watershed. They have to commit to doing something differently. It could be, for example, a weed pull, um, a garbage pickup. It could be, it could be something uh, of greater or smaller magnitude than that. So they sign the water charter, and then they get a piece of coding from me, computer coding, which is the old man logo, and you click it, and it will open up one of these videos. The video that they decide most applies to, to their... Um, to their uses, to their demographic. It could be a science video, it could be a kid's video, it, 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 whichever one they think applies to them most. So you've got the water charter on their website, sign. You've got the, the badge, the coding on the website. You click it, you open up one of the videos. And then they have to put up their own verbiage that says, what are they going to do differently? And this challenge will begin May long weekend, which is usually when activity starts up in the headwaters. And it will finish in uh, at September long weekend. So you have a beginning and an, and an end, not to get back into Aristotle, but you do have a beginning and an end so you don't get uh, a fatigue on the thing. And hopefully it will inspire um, other organizations. You could have like scout groups uh, picking up the challenge. You could have businesses picking up the challenge. You could have bowling clubs. Um, different organizations saying, yes, we commit to doing something this summer. Not just watch it creep, you know, 1% or 2% every year, but this is the summer that we start to do something differently. So that's what the water charter is about. Barry. Okay. Uh, my name is Kathy. I'm with the County Public Library. Uh, my question is about the natural water workers, the beaver. Um, I heard that they're part of, uh, that, we, that we need to bring them back to retain our ecosystems and the waterways. Um, I know on the Blood Reserve we have a little water um, source, the Bullhorn Creek, that runs through, that comes through the whole reserve. Um, some years the water is so rusty, and, um, and I think a lot of it has to do because of those times they killed off a lot of the beaver. But now that we're getting it back, it seems like those waterways are filling up again and the water looks more clearer. Is there a possibility that we can get that little guy in danger to help us in our waterways? Just for our area? Well, well, unfortunately they do it provincially. 
So it's probably not likely that they would list the, the beaver as endangered. Sometimes they will do um, pockets, like a subpopulation type of thing. But you're absolutely right um, at, the, at the bigger picture level. Like lots of beavers have disappeared and, and there is actually uh, efforts to bring them back. Uh, Noreen Ambrose is here from Cows and Fish and um, she uh, knows a lot more about beavers and um, they're working with, with groups to bring them back. I think there's been some uh, uh, successfully reintroduced here and there, but it's not easy. Um, it's very difficult to, to bring them back and help them survive. Um, it's a lot easier to keep the ones that you have. And, um, you know, there's a lot of money and time and energy going into trying to solve that problem, but um, it'd be a lot easier if we just didn't create it in the first place, right? Does that answer the question? Sort of. But, um, I, I have a feeling there's a second part that remains well, unanswered. I just think that it would be nicer to have them in more waterways than there are currently. Like, um, I, I, I summer up by Valley River and um, in the mountains of the U.S. border. And um, a lot, I, I, I found a couple of um, baby beaver skulls. Now, I think that was some spring runoff that got those two. But, I mean, only to find two in so many years, it, it, it just doesn't seem like there's enough going around to help with these waterways here. But, um, I know that like they're also used, uh, they were very effective in up north when a lot of oil spills, and they dammed off areas so it doesn't, it doesn't continue to seep them down to the floor of the water. So that kind of thing too, but especially the farmers leaking all that water into the watershed, um, it would seem like they would know what they were doing when they dam up areas that are maybe contaminated. And bringing them back in a healthier environment would help us bring our environment back too. Well, you know, the, the, the beavers have had a, a long and storied history, getting back to history um, in Canada. Uh, and. Uh, the, they, they've been viewed as, as a, a source of income, a source of warmth, um, but mostly as, a, as an enemy. And uh, it, it, it is up to us to understand our ecosystems and to understand all species and that we don't know the value of what they do. So it's high time we stop killing everything off because uh, we, don't, we don't know down the road um, all their special talents and how they can help uh, human beings. And, and as we progress down, down the road into a, an increasingly stressed watershed, uh, it seems like we don't have all the solutions. So I think you're quite right. My name's Barry. Uh, looking at your view into the future, I guess the piece that I would be most interested in is equating that timeline to what is the supportable population that can be sustained on the land that feeds off that watershed. Because I think that is one of the critical things. I, I moved west in 71 from Ontario, and what I saw in the foothills in terms of stream quality, beaver dams, and by the way, there's one in six mile, on six mile Coolie Creek. Uh, it just seems to have taken over in the last year, but there's been a huge difference 
and a lot of it relates to the population growth and the intensity of use throughout agriculture, industry, recreation, you name it. So I think if you're looking forward and saying where the water's going, my question is, what is supportable population? Well, and that's a good question, and I don't think anyone has done those calculations or thought about that too much. It's almost still kind of taboo to to talk about that. People don't like like to think about limits at all, um, especially when it comes to you know human population. So that's a very tricky tricky question. But um, what I what I would say is that. It would depend a lot on, on what kind of relationship we want to have with the watershed. I mean, if we could just look at how much water the rivers could supply to municipalities, for example, like how Okotoks tried to set a, a cap at 30,000 people based on their water license that they could have from the Sheep River, um, which they then abandoned when they reached 30,000 people. Um, because they were under so much pressure to continue to develop. So they purchased more water licenses. Um, but if, if, the, if you could ask the question a different way, like, you know, it depends on how we want to live and what, what way we want to look at it. And you almost have to look at it in a global context because most of our food doesn't even come from our own watershed. And we import a lot of food from, from California and you know, other places. So, you know, how many people the watershed can sustain um, depends on, on how you live and how, what, if you're, what you're looking at. If you're looking at food supply, if you're looking at just water supply, if you're looking at um, like how much, how much um, habitat or grassland do you want to leave, there's a million ways that you could look at it. That's a good question. Million dollar question. Maybe we'll help you answer that one. Seeing all of your licenses, all of your allocation is already allocated. Can, can you just hold that mic a little closer, please? Thank you. Bob, he's the worker our operations specialist. And as you mentioned earlier on in your presentation, all of our that's in southern Alberta has been allocated. So we have to make do with what we have. So we have to be able to be smarter or whatever. It's not how much we sustain. We're going to have growth. We know that. But we just have to be smarter about how to use the water. Yeah, and there's lots of good examples of how um, we are being smarter. Like uh, irrigation districts in particular have increased their efficiency by, I think, around 30%. Um, across the province, I was actually just looking at the numbers today, there has been an increase in efficiency of of a large number, I think it was around 30% as well. So um, we can be more efficient, but then it's a question of um, what then do we what do we do with that remaining water? Um, and it doesn't usually matter in, in a normal year or a wet year. You know, there's enough for everybody. It's only in a drought year where things start to go wrong and when the over-allocation matters, and that's when you have to start sharing like, like we did in 2001. Um, otherwise, um, just because it's allocated doesn't mean it's actually being used, right? Most years, only about half of the allocated water is actually used. So there's, uh, it's, 
if we use the full allocation, we drain the river, but we're not. We're only using about half. My name is Mike. Uh, I lived in Kamloops, BC, when ATVs became the thing, and I saw what they did to our grasslands and our area there. I'm wondering if you could speak about your. Uh, I understand you have some agreements with some of the ATV clubs in the area. Can you tell us how that's going? I'd like to introduce Barry Harper. <laughs> Barry, give us a wave. Uh, Barry's been a very strong supporter and partner. Uh, Shannon will tell you more about it. Yeah, so we, we have a recreation advisory committee um, that, that Sophie and Laren oversee, and we're working with them on you know, what are some, some real solutions that we can implement on our public lands in particular. Um, and there's, there's strong agreement from a lot of folks that you know, we, we, we've been advocating for user fees to help pay for enforcement, to help pay for education, um, to help pay for um, restoration as well. And there's lots of agreement around those things, and those are things we've been advocating to um, Environment and Parks, who is undertaking uh, uh, several planning processes in the castle, in the Porcupine Hills, and in the Livingston to try and better manage um, recreational use, both motorized and, uh, and non-motorized. And so um, a lot of those changes we expect will be coming soon. Um, it's, you know, it's just taking time for them to do the planning to figure out which trails will be designated for motorized use, which trails might be designated for non-motorized use, which areas will be um, protected and there won't be any motorized use. There's going to be, um, you know, different zones, different regions set up. And um, I think the challenge is, is just that, it, well, like any diverse group of people, you know, there's, there's thousands and thousands of people that enjoy motorized recreation. There's a range of opinions within that group. Um, some of the surveys that we did this summer, we had uh, four outreach assistants out on the ground talking to people one-on-one -on -one every weekend and they were ask, asking them survey questions and just having conversations in general about watershed health and you know things they could do to low, lessen their impact, um, using bridges, staying on trails, things of that nature. And we found um, a lot of the questions we asked about user fees, um, restoration, tr designated trails, it was often around that 50% mark. There was 50% support and 50% skeptical so <laughs> um, it's like, like any issue, there's always a range of opinions, but I, I do think that there's a strong contingent and a growing contingent of, of recreation uh, folks that do get it and they want to do the right thing and they're, they're happy to follow the laws once they know what they are. Um, we just need to make that more clear. What are the, the laws? What is the right thing to do? And, you know, have the signs and the maps and the, the information readily available for folks so they're not in the dark. So this is the same, but it's not the same. Yes. Um, my question has to do with the city and some of the uh, code bylaws, whatever have you, that deal with management of water. So, for example, um, gray water, use of gray water. Um, 
those sorts of things. And it just seems kind of silly that that perfectly usable water for non-drinkable purposes is just going down and, and should actually maybe be reused again before it gets to the water treatment plant. So I'm just wondering about the city. What, what is the city doing about that? Or is it? Um, yeah, for sure. That's actually a, a provincial issue. Um, the provincial government had, no, has identified that as a, a priority, and the Alberta Water Council and um, Alberta Innovates um, Environment and Energy Solutions are working on a framework for how to allow grey water use, and they're looking at you know what's done in California and some other places where. It has been successful. The main concern around grey water is is public health, that it is, you know, con contaminated water. So there's the the they're trying to figure out how um, they can protect the people's health while still allowing reuse. Um, and the then then the second problem is the infrastructure, right? To to allow that. There's already all the pipes in the ground for the current system. And how would we allow that change to happen? So it is being looked at, um, but there there are some real concerns. I was I was just wondering why did they worry about the leads in the gutter? Why did they worry about the leads in the gutter? If that's going just straight into the river, They're just sort of blocking up the, or that, that wouldn't hurt the river at all, would it? Well, I think it's more just kind of what is carried in with the leaves, like all the all the debris and dirt and and you know dog poop and everything is kind of washing at the same time. Um, what we like people to do is to collect the leaves and compost them, and you know. Make, when, when you compost them, it makes nutrients that you can put back in your garden and help build the soil health as well. Um, I mean, if they were nice, clean leaves straight off the tree, you know, it might not be an issue, but it's more that they're mixed in with everything else. And then they, they can form plugs as well in the, in the infrastructure, and then they catch other things that are no good, and then you get a big ball of goo. Mm -hmm. So just stopping the leaves from, from creating that, that kind of a net is important. You're saying that the water is not fit for us to drink, the river. Well, what about for the animals? Are they pretty well immune to it, or, or do they, uh, they have a problem as well? Do, is there any studies being done on what it's doing to the animals? Uh, like the deer, are they? I, I'd love to interview them and find out. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. well, if you collect the, uh, the carcasses at all, or uh, deer and, uh, well, all the animals that, that are living alongside the river, do they find some that are being killed by, by the river? Or, or sick because of the river? Um, I'm trying to think of any examples. Like we, we also have uh, Rick Andrews uh, in the house tonight, uh, who's a wildlife photographer who might be able to give some insight on that. Uh, also, Ryan Heavyhead here, I think he's uh, uh, quite well known to people as the, the rattlesnake catcher. He's in touch with uh, some of the nature questions, and also Lori Braidrock and uh, William Singer III. Uh, we've got uh, some knowledge about that as well. Does anybody? Want to take that question on? 
I know there's certainly like diseases that can be passed amongst fish, but I don't know about like deer and and uh, I presume that they're fairly immune, but I mean we definitely are probably impacting them from the things that aren't natural, like the pesticides and the all the added nutrients and bacteria could possibly have some effects, but I don't know if anyone's even studying that. Yeah, I'm not a scientist or anything, but I have perspectives on that question. I think really um, we've compromised our gut flora, <laughs> uh, you know, with our, with our lifestyle and with uh, including um, drinking water with chlorine and stuff in it. And so for this reason, because of our compromised gut flora, we can't drink the water, but all the other animals have a, a problem. So, um, so I don't know. You know, my perspective, my perspective on that question is that um, the rivers are, are probably definitely polluted because there's other indicators, you know, beyond what they should be, like the fact that there used to be a lot of otters here, and now there's not a lot of otters. And otters are one really good indicator species for water health, uh, water purity. So, but there's what there's otters starting to come back. So we don't know, like really, where things stand on that baseline because there was a big, you know, onslaught, uh, uh, an extermination, mass extermination of the animals here, you know, in the 1850s, the 1870s, where you had the bison, and the beaver, and the otters, and all kinds of animals being just uh, slaughtered. So we don't know if uh, if otters coming back today is an indication of the water health health improving, or if, or if it's just you know just put kind of a wave of of uh, rebound from from what happened in the 1870s. But I think in terms of us being able to drink it, you know, whether it's uh, potable water, I think a big part of it is just our just our gut flora and we can't handle it anymore. So that's my perspective as an on-scientist. It is, that's a very good question. Uh, and and I, I really nothing much more to add than what you could say. But uh, in my own private life, I'm, I mean, my wife is extremely sensitive about, oh, don't eat that. Don't pick that off the floor. I mean, we have become so paranoid about bacteria. Uh, and we have cleansed ourselves to a level of being incompatible with the environment. So yeah, if I go down to the river and drink it on a routine basis, I probably, I, I don't know what would happen to me. I suspect absolutely nothing. But uh, if I do it repeatedly, maybe something will happen to me because my intestinal flow and so on is so artificial now that we, don't come, we can't compare ourselves to the fox or the, to the deer or to anything that runs around. We, we, we have become so, so weak and so <laughs> well, I think it's important that we that, that we just note here that we've talked about two different things. We, we, we've talked about the fact that there's hand sanitizer everywhere and there's no five-second rule anymore. And, uh, and, and we have... Um, Lost, uh, I, I think, touch with uh, with what's dirty and what's what's clean. That's one thing. The other thing is there's crap in the river, and and, and let's not forget that. Just on that on that topic, though, the I think the real issue 
with the quality of the water and the non-humans that may be consuming it is the concentration into the food chain. So it works its way up. So, you know, microorganisms are all the way up to the species, right? So that's the thing we have to watch, is what's going on with the animals. And I'm, I'm sort of hyper-sensitive to it right now, because I just listened to a very good podcast recently about the role of plastics and the disintegration of plastics into the water systems and how that is just the, the fish and stuff are eating it because they think it's their normal food. And it doesn't digest. So, and, and when we did the river science tour that the Illinois Watershed Council did about three years ago, and um, Alice Hontella from the university spoke at the lunch, and she talked about the microbeads in our cosmetics. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's just a lot of stuff that we use that we flush down that doesn't get picked out by the water treatment. And it ends up back in the water system and into the food chain eventually. And that, that gets into our system. Yeah, so read the labels, folks. <laughs> yeah, water. Yeah, and uh, also mentioned that uh, should be maybe uh, pharmaceuticals and run off from intensive farming is uh, obviously a bit of an issue as well. Um, one thing that you mentioned is, uh, I know the, the natives across the river, uh, I was raised on this very practical since I was a child growing up. And um, the water, um, we drank all water. And um, nobody's ever come out and tested our water to say, Consumption or anything like that. But over the years, we've continued to drink it because that was our own source of water, right? And so we put it in a lot of water. We started getting maybe five gallons for that pretty well replaced, you know, like cooking and stuff like that. The water is all prepared. Another concern is for the livestock. It would be wise to put a water treatment plant on the reserve if we have such a wide area that it wouldn't be my pipe to find the stuff to organize something like this. And we probably put an organ on, 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 on the river um, because of all the things being consumed from such a large area. So maybe in time there would be negotiation with placing something like this to make a treatment within our community. Because um, we, we all we all rely on this source. We all rely on this. It's a source of light that gives nourishment to our bodies and give us uh, so like in time to 
I'd like to acknowledge Jonathan Tallman and Mark Greybrock. They are with the Three Rivers Drum Circle Group, and they're helping us on the film project uh, as well. Um, on the website, I don't remember where it is. There's a, a link there to um, to uh, where you can get a, a kit for water water quality testing. Is it still up on the website? Well, um, you can actually get them from Alberta Health. Um, they they will give you a container to to collect the water in from your well, um, and then they will test it and send you the results. And that's a free service that Alberta Health does for people who have wells. So I definitely encourage everyone to take advantage of that um, at least once a year, um, if not twice a year. And um, you're absolutely right, Jonathan, that we need we need to address the water supply on, on First Nations. They, you know, a lot of people don't have uh, running water and, and clean water, so it needs to be addressed. It's, it's unacceptable in a country like Canada. Now, so one of, one of the things that infuriates me personally when I, when I go to uh, certain events in certain places where they're collecting money uh, for water in other countries and our neighbors right down the road don't have access to clean, clear drinking water. You've got mothers with small children who have to find a ride somehow into Lethbridge to be able to do the washing for the kids. This is, this is insanity. Uh, it's not fair, it's not right, and it's our problem. We have time for one quick question and one quick answer. <laughs> um, we all know what the problems are with our water, but give me a geographic um, breakdown as to where our, where the problems come in. Like at the headwaters, it is our industries, our forestry, our surveying, the erosion, it's, it's our recreation. And as you come down the river, what are the concerns as you follow the stream down, down the river? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And if you look at the actual water quality data that Alberta Environment collects, and um, Natalie is our regional limnologist who is responsible for the monitoring and reporting in our area. And she gives a great presentation that points out that it's everywhere and it's everyone. Um, it's not. You, you, it's not obvious from the data that, oh, it's you know, the cattle farmers, or oh, it's the crops, or oh, it's the city, or you know, oh, it's the quarters, or whatever. It really is everyone, even a lot of the percentages. Even if you make a, a pie chart of you know, where the contaminants come from, there's just as much coming from our cities and our towns as there are from our rural areas. And um, you know, there's no... There's no um, point in, in judging each other and pointing fingers at each other. We all um, have, have a huge impact, and the data makes that very clear. And uh, you know, there's been great strides in wastewater treatment plants, lowering the impact on uh, the bacteria side with the UV and on that. That helped a lot, but um, you know, it doesn't mean that in terms of nutrients or pesticides or fertilizers that has been addressed on all fronts. So um, we all need to do better. So I think that we could sort of sum things up uh, by saying we are all downstream. 
from someone else, and we are all upstream from someone else. And uh, I'm, I'm largely responsible for the social media for Old Man Watershed Council. We have an outreach of about 15,000 people per week that we that we reach with our uh, with our missives. And one thing that drives me absolutely wild is, you know, I'll post something about mining, and then, you know, people in, in uh, you know, tourism will, will, will say, you know, well, it's them, it's not us. And then if I post something about the cows, then they'll say, oh, well, well what about people in urban areas? And if I, if I post something about the provincial government, then they'll say, what about the feds? And it just, it just goes around and around and around. The time has come for us to realize that we're all interconnected and that we can all change something. So uh, your being here means an awful lot, and, uh, and thank you for coming, and, and we are all downstream. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, if you want to know more about all this stuff, you can go on the Women Water State Council website. They have oodles of information there. Or come by the office and take me out for coffee. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. Hey, thanks for coming out. Where did you go? It's right downtown. If you know where the, the Telegraph is or the Southern Alberta Art Gallery, we're on the same uh, same road there and uh, right in the middle of the, of the street. And we'd, we'd love to have people come by and say hello.